Well, this is an interesting episode, isn't it? For the first time in some time, we are recording only on Zoom. Uh, noise suppression is disabled. That's good. That means I can use proper uh, videos. Well, this is interesting. For the first time in some time, I'm actually recording on Zoom, talking about the 1945-51 Labour government. And indeed, I will be talking alongside my good friend James Roxburgh. We'll be talking about the 45-51 administration and all the Attlee government did from domestic and foreign policy, the NHS, nationalisation, the welfare agenda, looking at the wartime controls, but also talking about Korea, looking at the EEC, well, the European Coal and Steel Community, which then became the EEC, uh, the special relationship between the United States and, and Britain, and talking about decolonisation, and looking overall at the British and foreign affairs, uh, sorry, domestic and foreign affairs. This is going to be how we're going to be doing it in in this course of series. So, what's next Sunday? I'm going to do, or next Saturday even, or maybe even next Thursday when the budget actually happens. I'm going to look at the nineteen, the budget itself. But then when we do British episodes now, it's going to be nineteen fifty one sixty four Tory government, nineteen sixty four seventy Labour government, nineteen seventy seventy four Heath government, seventy four seventy nine Callahan and Wilson, sorry Wilson Callahan, seventy nine to nineteen Thatcher, uh, ninety to ninety seven John Major, ninety seven to twenty ten New Labour, and then the last twelve Tory years. So that's the overall next eight or eight nine episodes of British history we're going to be covering. And now let's begin with Atlee. Let's get in James in the room. That's the first time in a long time I've been able to do one of my introductions. Alright, so the way the format's going to work, well, look, if you've listened to any of the last 41 episodes of the podcast, you know how the format's going to work. Um, let's just crack on with it. James will ask all the domestic policy questions, I'll ask all the foreign policy questions, and we're just going to discuss them. Yeah, let's go. So, how bold was the creation of the system of free of charge healthcare? Absolutely bold. It crowned the principle of socialism, which is that individual state has a moral duty to protect people. Now, what did the NHS do? The NHS said, after decades, if not centuries, of private healthcare, where the rich got what they required and the poor were told to go to hell, Nye Bevan developed the idea that every single person in this country is entitled to healthcare free of charge to the individual. Free of charge. Now this changed everything because never again did a senior citizen, a disabled person, a young person have to worry about the medical bill because the state covered it for them. Now yes it's true the Liberals under Mr David Lloyd George brought in the National Health Insurance concept which is basically what Germany have but the NHS was a statement idea that basically everyone gets care for free which yeah. you know is a very popular policy and no politician could dare to overturn the nhs no it'd be political suicide if they did so because they're giving their the, the best go at it because of course they hate poor people and hate anyone who's suffering because they're a bunch of entitled people who rely on daddy's bank accounts but you know these but the nhs is still an exceptional thing and the atlee government created it and the point is now is that it treats millions of people still extraordinarily well, even though it's a run-down bureaucratic monolith, which it, it is. No, no yeah. six persons as it isn't. 
But the free of charge principle is something I think every rational, sane human being has agreed with now. Yeah. Except young conservatives. But like I said, every rational, sane human being agrees with the free of charge principle. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that is our main reason why it is achievement exclusive to the 1945 to 51 Labour government. Mm. Was it because was it because the Conservatives thought it could happen? I mean, Churchill referred to it as the Gestapo would have to uh, would have to oversee this organisation. Mm. Um, I know other countries did it for a while until the UK actually did it. Yeah. Um, so why was it? Why was it seen? Why was it only exclusive to the 1945 uh, to 40, uh, 51 Labour government. Well, because we did it. I mean, yes, it's true. Lloyd George started it. Yes, it's true. Winston Churchill had said the National Health Insurance Act was, quote, the beacon of British values. But that's true. But we created the NHS. We created the principle that the poor and the sick shouldn't have to rely on market forces or social insurance funds, but instead have the state caring for them. Now, the yeah. Liberals didn't do it. The Tories said they wanted an expansion of private hospitals and local hospitals if they got into power in '45. We said there has to be an NHS, a National Health Service, for all people in this country. Yeah. And by the way, anyone who says the Tories did it, let me just remind you, when in 1948 we were voting on the National Health Service, the Tory party voted against it 22 times. And I think if you vote against something 22 times, it means you don't support it. Yes, so, I agree with that. So I, that's why it's uh, exclusively our achievement, because we built it, we reformed it, and we've saved it many times, and we will save it again. Yeah, I agree. And so, but it wasn't just the Conservatives who were against it. There was also the British Medical Association as well. Oh. Um, so why was... Right. Do you know the benefit of having this back on Zoom, James? What? Have a guess. You can share your screen. I can put a video on. I'm going <laughs> to quick. Well, just elongate your question for a minute. I'm going to start 2003, where the dear leader, Tony, uh, basically eviscerates uh, the Tories, Liberals, the BMA, the Royal College of Nursing, the House of Lords for opposing foundation hospitals. Yeah, right. So basically, so the BMA's initial opposition to the National Health Service yes. um, was showing their contempt for change, maybe. But um, so why was it? Why why was it that they were so against change? Was it was it a reason that they felt their jobs were under pressure? I mean, many Tory MPs at the time were part of the BMA. Was it just the Tory opposition leaders that were against it, not actually the BMA itself? So why was there a reason why there's a huge, you know, <laughs> against um, towards the NHS by the BMA? Found it, I found it, I found it. I tell you, in all sincerity, when I read a resolution saying foundation hospitals are opposed by an alliance of the BMA and the House of Lords, and yes, Tories and Lib Dems too, I say, are we a progressive party? If we'd listened to that alliance, we would never have had an NHS in the first place. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you asked that question, that is literally the first thing that came back to my mind was Tony Blair. Um... Look, the BMA have, it's the job, the job of unions is to oppose change. That is literally, and look, I'm a trade union supporter, but that is their job. I mean, that's why in Yes Minister, every time they want to make a change, what does Sir Humphrey say? Ah, the unions won't wear it. The unions won't <laughs> tolerate this. 
the BMA famously called Nybevin a medical furor. They oppose the National Health Service vigorously. They support the privatized hospitals. The AMA in America, the American Medical Association, are the biggest defenders of privatization. So this is why I often have a go at the BMA once in a while, because I'll say, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You can't speak about change. If we'd listened to your lot, we'd still be paying £10,000 for medical bills. Um, yeah. The reason they opposed it was because they it's their job to protect their members. They don't care for the sick. They don't care for the weak. It's to protect their members. Now, if they thought that if the state was to nationalise the pay of their members, which they were to do, nationalise the practising of their members, which they would, that some members would be sacked. So I say good, because if they're incompetent nurses and doctors, shouldn't they be sacked anyways? So they opposed it because, as always, anything that leads to change, they think will lead to fewer members for their organisation. Yeah. So, moving on from the mate. so why did the National Health Service have to be created? Well, you tell me. Why do you think the NHS has to be created as a principle? Oh, that's flipping on its head. <laughs> but I think I think I think a definite reason why was that you couldn't have people coming home from war, houses destroyed, injured because of the war, and say to them, "You have to pay for your medical bills." Right. That that that, that just couldn't be the case. Obviously, I know I obviously I know veterans had a different form of healthcare at the same time, but I mean the people who weren't involved in the war at all, like you know, people who stayed at home and got uh, shelled and got injured from the bombings and all that, and um, they didn't want to go to war. They they were, and you can't you can't you can't reasonably expect them. Sorry. Your your house got bombed. You have to pay for your medical, uh, your med uh, to to stay alive. That just wasn't going to happen. And I think, and I think that's something that Atley tapped into, and Bevan and uh, the Labour government tapped into was really looking at the people as a whole and thinking, do you know what's the best way we can help them out after this war? They've gone through war. They've lost loved ones. They've lost things. We're not going to make them pay for their not going to make them pay for their injuries that they might have sustained from the war. We're going to help them out. I think I think that was a definite reason why it had to be created. Quite. It's like the GI Bill of Rights in the United States that President Roosevelt did. It was acknowledgement that now the war's over, we've got to do something bold. I mean, look, in nineteen eighteen, after the First World War, we gave universal suffrage, so all people had the right to vote in this country. And after forty five we said we must create the welfare state, we must create the the National Health Service, etc. And yeah. these were very forward-thinking reforms. I think these are reforms which, whilst today we can say, well, have they been implemented correctly? Are there better ways of doing this? The principle yeah. of the reform was genius. Yeah. And it, you it, can't deny that. Labour government to do that. The Tories would not have done that. I mean, you know, look, Rab Butler, who was the leading Tory moniter in the 45-50 parliament, when talked about the NHS, talked about defending the welfare state, talked about defending the unions, did that because the Tories had been literally wiped off the face of the earth politically, <laughs> losing nearly 200 seats. We won a majority yep. of 146. We won a majority bigger than what Margaret Thatcher had achieved in 1983. We won a, The only person to achieve bigger majorities than Clem Attlee was a man named Anthony Charles Linton Blair. And he seemed to have got them, I recall, in 1997 and 2001. <laughs> I mean, famously, uh, what was it? Tony said there were only three elections since the war where the Tories have got uh, less than 200 seats. This was one, referring to 2005, and the others were 1997 and 2001. 
But they, it forced the, the Tories in that parliament to do lots of rethinking. Because the Labour Party, you know, were nationalising the railways, nationalising steel, basically laying the foundations for the welfare state, doing the NHS. And you couldn't go in the 1950 election and say, ah, we will abolish all this crap, you know, that would be political suicide. So they said no. And it forced both parties to accept fundamental principles in the same way the election of Margaret Thatcher forced both parties to accept fundamental principles. Mm. So... I'm going to say Alan Simpson there. Didn't answer your question, but I got a lot off my chest. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, But, okay, so... um, So, was was the failure to integrate social care a black spot on the achievements of the NHS? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. By the way, we're going to do this... We're not going to do it foreign policy, domestic policy. We're going to take the questions one section at a time, by the way. Okay. Uh, so you can speak without having to be a Trappist. <laughs> me just droning on for 40 minutes. Okay, okay. That's for next Sunday. Anyways, uh, the, okay, social care. So when they did the health, the NHS system, they basically included medical care. And that included physical care, hospital care, accident emergency care, mental health care, etc. GP appointments, right? For some reason, they didn't do social care. Now, I don't understand why. Because social care plays just a bigger role in the deliverance of healthcare as does uh, hospital care. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen over the last, I'd say the last 12 years, is the failure of not integrating social care. Yeah. Elderly people literally being forced to care for fellow elderly people without care workers, you know, £10 an hour bills for care workers. I'm sorry, which elderly person has £10 an hour? It's like now you've got Mr. Jeremy Hunt saying he wants to uh, remove the cap on care costs. Mm. Uh, excuse me? What did you just say? You want poor pensioners now paying, you know, six figures because their husband is dying. Right off. And I think the failure of Labour governments, because the Tories would never do it. You know, the Tories have no, even though the old people vote Tory for reasons I still can't fully comprehend, Labour should have done it under Wilson. We could have done it under New Labour. We should have. National Care Service yeah. is our policy platform. But I certainly think it's a, it's a black spot on the health service because whilst the health service has been a phenomenal achievement and is a phenomenal concept, a phenomenal institution, mm-hmm. the failure to integrate social care has left a damning mark on it. Yeah. But it can be a healed mark. I still believe that the next Labour government with the National Care Service could still fix it. Yeah, I agree. So, did the introduction of NHS prescription charges yeah. to fund the Korean War was that a ludicrous idea, or was it was it an idea? Crazy that... idea. Utterly, 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 utterly mental in the head crap nonsense of an idea. You're going to charge people for spectacles and dentures. So you can go and shoot people in Korea. What? What's the logic on that? I mean, the UK was already spending 10% of its national income on defence. We hadn't cut defence really until until really the mid to late 50s, early 60s. We weren't slashing defence spending. So you can not reappropriate funds. Did you really have to do that? Yeah, but I mean, it could it it could be said it could be said that there was there was um there was disrepute 
inside the Labour Party that that will stop them from paying the prescription in any way. Nia Bevan resigned from the government. Harold Wilson also joined him in resigning from the government because it was a disgraceful idea. Utterly disgusting. You know, okay, yes, Jim Callaghan abolished them in 1965. And then after devaluation of the pound, what did we do? We brought them back again. I mean, for God's sake. It makes no sense. I mean, personally, if you ask me, I would abol- I'd spend, it cost £2 billion, but I would abolish all charges in the NHS. I, dental, hospital, car parking, prescriptions, scrap the lot of them. Mm. The health service, you know, yes, you can talk reasonably about using the private sector to cut waiting lists, about using the private sector to build more hospitals, about using the private sector to create better supplies of equipment. Fine. Absolutely fine. But if you want to start going down the route of charging people for medical care, well, you can have that from me. A massive two-fingered salute. <laughs> okay, so um, so fire, the final question in HS. There are some stupid people didn't catch on the reference there. How about the middle-fingered salute? <laughs> there we are. Um, so the final question in HS. Um, was Bevan the best Secretary yes. of State yes. for health? Yes, Nye Bevan was the best Secretary of State for Health, no doubt. Nye Bevan was, then followed by Frank Dobson, then followed by Ken Clark, then followed by... Uh... Matt Hancock? <laughs> be serious, be serious. He, he, Matt Hancock couldn't lead the country out of a paper bag. Um... He probably managed to get his in it, though. <laughs> Almost certainly. See, I'm thinking whether or not I should include Alan Milburn on the list, but then I just think about all the ghastly reforms he did with Foundation Hospitals. No, those are the three best health secretaries I've ever had. Nye Bevan, mm-hmm. Dobson, and Ken Clark. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean um, honestly, every doctor hated Bevan. The medical lobbies hated Bevan. The unions hated an Iron Bevan for this. The medical unions did. And Bevan had one response. I don't care. This is the right thing to do, and I'm not listening to you. Go away. Mm. Aaron Bevan famously was the man who said, what was it? No form of intellectual or social seduction could ever stop my burning hatred for the Conservative Party. As far as I'm concerned, they are lower than vermin. <laughs> and Ken Clark had said, if he'd done nothing else, that would make him an... Actually, let's put that on. Uh, because Ken Clark was asked about that when he did an event for Intelligence Squared. And he, do- he actually makes a very interesting point about Bevan. Uh, Ken Clark, uh, John Humphreys. See, I'm not actually, I'm not never aware I've got loads of videos out of my bag, but there we are, you know. This is making up for the lost time with the videos. Most of the election. Blair, opposite. Blair. All right. And uh, some of the rural areas, I'm wary and understand, but you need some understanding that in Europe, if you're a Brexiteer, you're thick. I think I've underestimated <laughs> problems over Europe. I mean, I, mean, I was against holding a referendum, but anyway, that's... A simple way of summing all that up, though, is to say that you, the ruling class, the politicians, how many people in this? How many of you think that a very distinguished Labour? That's it. Found it. My view is largely 
But is it any, any more childish than a politician, a Labour politician, a very distinguished Labour politician a few decades ago calling the Tories vermin, lower than vermin, Nyron Bevan? I mean, it's not as if 50, 60, 70 years ago there was this great um, mutual admiration between the people and the politicians. If he'd done nothing, other than say that. <laughs> that would have done it, wouldn't uh, it? Yes, you yes, would have taken yeah. the faintest notice of yeah, uh, Nybevin, but quite. you said it, I have no doubt, in the middle. I never heard Nybevin, but he always was brilliantly eloquent, and he also was a very considerable political thinker. Mm. I mean, he had, you go into politics to make a difference. He knew what difference he wanted to make. Yes, he he had made it. He knew what, to, and he was trying to rouse the enthusiasm of his audience, and he'd, he didn't just give them the details of how the new health service was going to be structured or what the arrangements were going to be for the recruitment of midwives or anything, because even in those days, that wouldn't have held your uh, audience for very long. He could liven it up with a few attacks on his opponents, and that's one of his famous ones, lower than vermin. But no, All right. No, 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 no. I just thought I'd put that out there, because it's a fascinating point, actually, about communications. About yeah. Even in the 1940s, if you did this how you would recruit the midwives, how you'd recruit the nurses, you'd still bore the pants off people. <laughs> you'd just say, the Tories are lower than vermin! Because, of course, they're <laughs> Welsh. That'd get a big hooray and a cheer. Yes. Politics really doesn't change, but I love it. Anyways, uh, let's talk about education. Um, I'll ask you about education, then we'll talk about nationalisation, and ask you about full employment, okay? Yeah, okay. So... 1944, when the great Rab Butler, R.A. Butler, the, the, when people think of R.A. Butler, the first thing they say is, ah, Rab Butler really is the best Prime Minister we never had. And he, he was a fine, fine Chancellor, Education Secretary, Home Secretary. I think he was even the Foreign Secretary as well. I think, no, he might have been the Foreign Secretary. Uh, Butler brought in the 1944 Education Act, which basically ended charging people to go to secondary school, it uh, ended the need for private teachers in the state sector. It basically nationalised the education system as we know it. Created the state system as we know it today. So yeah. the creation of the state system of education, which Butler did, uh, with the help of the Labour Party and the National Unity Government, stifled any attempt for radical reform of education because yeah. it had already been done. Well, in 1944, you had the Education Act, which you just said that. It was passed. Uh, it was was introduced, and Labour had to subsequently pass it. Um, I think, or oh, oh, I'll deal with the effects of it being passed at least. Um, and it introduced uh, free secondary school education, uh, exams for the eleven year uh, for eleven years old. Um, up until I believe education up until the age of fifteen, wasn't it? Fifteen, and that's, that's right. Up to up until the age of fifteen, and I think, and I think when it comes to the great, um, I think you couldn't really reform. It because they you couldn't really reform education because it already already previously about a year ago went into extreme reform. Mm. There was no way you could say, do you know what? Let's let's figure out a way to reform this even further. You just couldn't because the teachers had to teach new people. Teachers had to treat, uh, teach uh, new uh, more students because I mean at that time it wasn't compulsory to go to secondary education. Now mm. it is. Um, so there was more. There's more students. There was there was more teachers. There was more schools. There was more. There was more educational opportunities for uh, for pupils. And I think you could not then just say, Do you know what, we're going to do this as well. 
it it completely it stopped all plans for um the Labour Party actually introducing any educational um uh, any educational um policies. But I mean, you the education the Education Act of nineteen forty four. I mean, wasn't in itself a particularly bad act. I mean, it it, it kept. It, it kept kept people in education. It um it uh it provided it provided teachers with um more people to teach, which people would argue is a bad thing, and it probably is. But I mean, it still provided more schools, provided more teachers to to the country as a whole. But I think so. I don't think either a the country would have enough money to introduce another policy on top of that education, especially with the NHS coming along, especially when we're going to talk about nationalisation of pretty much every industry you could think of uh, coming along. There just wouldn't be enough money to lend put even to education so i think they're not I, to be fair i don't think they would have added too much either so i think butler did most of the work yeah exactly most of the work that was fundamental and i'd argue um, a rather left-wing bill of education which is unusual for a tory government but it was a center-left bill yeah and i think also the the, the basically destruction of the church schools was fascinating how butler basically ended cv as a print as a yeah. master- Status. You know, CV schools still exist, but they're not as big as they once were. No. Uh, let's move on to nationalisation, and then let's we'll talk about full employment. I'll give up full employment. So, was the renationalisation of the railways a sensible idea? Yes. I mean, I mean it's a pretty straightforward question, a pretty straightforward answer. Right, I'll, I'll, I know, it's very unusual. Dowd actually giving a one word answer out, doing a Liz Trust there. Yes. Um, was it sensible yes in the theory that you had to nationalize quote essential industries i think people would accept that the 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 means of transportation the roads the aviation the buses the trans the railways are essential industries in their means of transportation would it be but the question is what so it was wise in 1945 when there wasn't competition in the marketplace, when there really was just British Rail running the whole fucking thing, would it be wise today to renationalise railways? Mm. I, have, I have an open question. I would say yes. I think that's an open question. I, I think there's always, I think, look, when the whole nationalisation debate, I always think there's a huge case for public investment in, indus- in, in privatised industries. For government yeah. to take a, a stake, even if it's a decent stake, like thirty percent, and I certainly think it's a case to strip franchises off stupid companies, Avanti, Northern being some you know obvious examples of stupid companies. Mm. But I don't see the case today for the renationalisation of the railways. I, I don't see it yet. I, I see the case for telling these incompetent privatised firms to go away. I certainly see the case for network rail growing a spine and actually regulating and not just sitting there going la 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 to all these private firms messing around. Mm. But I mean, I, I would say, I would say, I'm torn. That I, I would say, I would say that we set targets. If the if they for for a year and from one from one uh, from the beginning of the calendar year to the end of the calendar year, if they cannot meet those targets by the end of the year, it would then mean that the government will take them over. That particular that particular route. So if it's advancing with the north or with the northwest, I would... so but if Southern Way oh, Southern Rail doing well, but that's just an example. Virgin if wasn't he? with Virgin East Coast in oh four to oh nine mm-hmm. because they were messing around their passengers, hiking fares and in crap routes. 
So the government nationalised it, and within three years, it became the most profitable part of the rail industry. Yeah. So I can look. I can see a case for it, but unlike most people who believe in renationalised rail, I have studied British Rail. I have spent a quite a part of my life studying trains and train tracks and models of trains. It's you know, it's. I mean, that literally does play into the stereotype of people like me. Um, but it's true, and I think the British Rail was pretty shit but but i certainly see the case for basically doing what labor's saying with energy have a public rail firm competing in the private sector and where there are failing private firms so for example northern rail abolish yeah. them have british rail there Avanti, yeah. abolish them have british rail there but where there is succeeding private rail have them continuing but where there is such a clear case, like Avanti, they've doubled their fares and cut their services, get out, British Rail will take you over. Yeah. I think that's my view. But I think with all industries, certainly the government should have a stake in them and a much more yeah. say in them. I agree. Um, so, Ali was right at the time to nationalise it, certainly. At the time. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of nationalisations he did. So, I mean, this is practically what we're going to talk about. So, was the renationalisation of electricity and gas the sensible course of action after the time? At the time, yes. I mean, there were a lot of things at the time in 1945 which were correct, but would not be correct today. What? You don't think we, you should renationalise the gas and electricity now? No, because you wouldn't have the money to do it. No, no, not talking about money. I'm talking about is it right? <sighs> is it right to bring electricity and gas under public ownership? Forget, forget about the finance part of it. We'll no, just talk about... I think that the... <sighs> The thing people on the left and the right detest is monopolies. They mm -hmm. hate the idea that there's one owner that runs an entire sector and pisses around the people. Okay? And I think... The national grid? Oh, yeah, the national grid being a perfect example, quite. I think when there are privatised monopolies that are messing people around, then we are all right to condemn them, rightly. But when there's a public monopoly, why don't we condemn them when they're messing around? We do. The NHS, for instance. People condemn the NHS all the time. The NHS. We're going to do an episode in the very foreseeable future on the massive, complex issue of the health service. Because the NHS is much more grey than people give it credit for. It's no, no, no. I, I, I agree. It's a brilliant thing. But people still... People people would still... People would still... Love it. Even though you, people still love it and people still hate it. Because yes, dearly, but it's I can still point out the absolute incompetence of it eighty percent of the time. Yeah, but but then is, isn't the NHS a monopoly in itself in the health industry yeah, for him? Of course it are, but that's different. The reason it's different is because is it now? No, it is because it's very important. To <laughs> is it? Is it? I bet it is. It is because everyone knows the alternative. The health service makes you want to run to the hills and scream. Yeah, but we've never, uh, well, for, for a long time now, we, I've never been alive. I've never been alive when there's been a free, uh, free uh, nationalised electricity and gas. Not no, free, sorry. No, parents were. Yeah, yeah. And, the 86, wasn't it? 1986, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. so, no, it was a bit early now, wasn't it? Could be. Because BP was privatised in 1980. Uh, British Gas, it was 84, because telecoms was 84, then the gas and electricity... Then it was the airlines, and it was cable and wireless. God, this my knowledge on privatizations is too scary for someone. But, but would you, but would you agree? In nineteen eighty six, when the miners went on strike because of the privatization, and no, no, the gas and electricity and all of this, not um, electricity 
sacked at Crumble. No, I, the reason the miners went on strike was because Mrs. Thatcher was going to cut a hundred thousand jobs to the mining industry. Yeah, obviously, yeah, obviously, obviously, yeah. Well, then, but if it was nationalized, if it was nationalized, the electricity at the time, do you think it would have had a bigger effect? What? I'm preventing the miners' strike. No, not preventing the miners' strike. Preventing the effect on the household's lack of electricity. Yes, because gov- if you have central control, for example, the three-day week couldn't have happened. Not necessarily because. If you have effective planning, you'll be able to, like Schultz, for example, who runs electricity in Germany. Electricity is owned in Germany. What does he say? He spent the last seven months asking people to turn their thermostats down, use less electricity so they can stockpile huge reserves for this winter. Now, it turns out because of the capturing of Kherson by the Ukrainians, that might not certainly be necessary because this war is now coming to an end. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not the end. It's the beginning of the end of this war now because Russia have got literally no control of you, of any city in Ukraine now. Yeah. But, mm. look, I'm not at all hostile to the case for it. There's a case for it. But I would say, personally, divide each region up, 12 regions, and have three electricity companies competing against each other with, with a public stake in each of them, 30% public stake in each of them. So if a company messes up, the government will find it very easy to take it from them. So wait, so so, you, so your solution for privatization is more privatization? No, my solution is competition done correctly. The issue is we've given basically we've allowed EDF to regulate all the electricity in Britain, and they've done an utterly shit job of it. If you yeah. have genuine competition with three, four, five companies in each region competing against each other, if your electricity provider then said, I'm doubling your bills, you can say, that's fine, double my bills. I'm now changing my provider. What are you going to do? And the threat of going bankrupt to the company would force them to behave. And I also think, by the way, we need Ofgem to grow a spine and regulate sensibly. Off what did brilliant regulations for 10 years kept water bills at 4% increases. These clowns have led off gem with 35, 40, 45% increases. Now this year with tripling of the bills. So I think the solution yeah. has to be the public sector taking a stake but trusting enterprise to flourish. And that's a very unpopular position. I utterly agree. But in the long term, work, I mean, is there a case for like GB Energy, which Labour have proposed? Yes. I think that's a good idea. But I would not say let's nationalise the whole electricity industry. Gas, uh, okay. to a lesser extent, possibly yes, because of the Green New Deal. No, the Just Stop Oil won't be very happy with that, would they? Well, I don't care what those criminals are. <laughs> um, they're a bunch of vandals and thugs and they should shut up. But I think the issue with gas, I think, look, when in America they drill for natural gas, they got the price of natural gas down from $7.97 to $2.20. If that mm. happened in Britain, we would have oil per litre at 56 pence would be the price of petrol. Now, I get that supporting fracking is the, is asking to be screamed, shouted and kicked. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm about to come to your house, Dad, if you say I advocate for fracking. Ah, I know. You'd come up to me and say, right, come on, Ugandan, let's shoot this bastard with leaving fracking. No, but I think there's certainly a case for the state taking a leading role in saying, in the short term, let's keep these non-renewables so we can get prices low. But then in the longer term, that's fireworks, isn't it? Yeah. And in the longer term, let's expand our... Let's nationalise solar. Let's nationalise wind. Let's nationalise nuclear. Sure, 
let's nationalize nuclear and then use the state to enhance these renewable energies. Yeah, I agree completely. Let's nationalize renewable energies, certainly. Yeah, definitely. We should keep, we should make uh, renewable energies only nationalizable. Uh, it should be only put into the national hands of the government. Um, so we'll move on now to iron and steel. Yes. Um, again, yes. The same question. Yes. Yeah. There is no doubt. The, the, the privatization of British steel has been one of the biggest failures, except for the privatization of British Rail. And anyone with one or two brain cells would know that steel is still our last manufacturing plant. And has to be bought back in public ownership immediately. Along yeah. with mail, actually. Along with the mail and the bus services, I would bring those three immediately and back into public ownership. No question. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think I think what people don't realise with steel was when manufactured when manufactured privatised steel and closed the many steel. Yeah. Um the effect it had on the British economy was absolutely ridiculous. It people, people, James, it wasn't Thatcher. Oh, sorry, not who was it? Tony Blair. Was that actually him? Yep, 1999 British Steel was privatized. Oh, so what, so what did Thatcher do the steels then? She did, she did something. Uh, no, Thatcher just decentralized it. So local authorities got to run steel plants, not central government. I mean, that's worse. I mean, saying that's probably worse than privatization. <laughs> yeah, how horrendous. But no, it's Tony yeah. Blair sold off British Steel. Yeah, um, but I think. Oh, dear. But I think what should happen is is that there is a there is we should really go the fireworks are back off there again. But um, it's been a week since bonfire. <laughs> Shut up. But I think I think the iron and steel industry really do need should come back into uh, nationalised hands. Um, and I think and I think that's the same with I think that's the same with many re- natural resources that we have in the UK. Um, so, talk, talk, talking about other natural resources, Darren, about the coal, uh, yep. renationalisation of coal, good idea? Immediately, and I would start, and there's still a thousand years of coal underground, let's everyone remember that. Coal is still a massive resource, but we would never send anyone down the pits nowadays. But we should no. look at ways of looking at ways of doing it in a sound, net zero way that we can still have a good supply of energy, because there is still a thousand years of coal underground. And yeah. that with the power of technology, we have to make breakthroughs. We can find a way of using coal refineries. We don't have to have pollution in the air. If there is no way of doing it without polluting the pollution, so be it. But I think certainly the nationalisation of coal was an amazing idea. And incidentally, it was the one industry that was never privatised. Was it? No, never privatised coal. They just kept screwing it all the time, but still never privatised. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on to... Um, uh, to... James. Sorry, well, we moved to full employment. Oh no, we we're talking about the roads. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about the roads in the bank now. Right? We're talking about the roads in the bank. Yeah, yeah. So, when the Bank of England now famously yes. Gordon Brown privatised it, uh, but then famously um, Clement Attlee uh, nationalised it. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so what? Who do you think was in the right? Oh, good question. Um. Oh, Gordon, Gordon Brown. I think, look, was there a case in the post-war era to have government setting interest rate monetary policy? Yes. But I think after 97, the Brown decision to give the Bank of England the right to set interest rates created stability in the markets. Because never again 
could a chancellor cut interest rates before the election or before the party conference? So, yeah, I'm for that. But as I've said on many times on this podcast, taking the Bank of England's right away of regulating banks caused the financial crisis. Yeah. So Gordon is partly to blame for that. But because Gordon was a nine out of ten chancellor, he gets we can all credit him. <laughs> okay, so I'm a final question in nationalisation. Yeah. Was nationalisation of uh, civil aviation yeah. and roads a, a good idea? Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you look at in America, the interstate highway system they developed, which was a public project, the biggest ever costed public project, and it's developed roads in America that are amazing. And I think personally. Things like aviation. I mean, um, do airports need to be nationalised? I suppose yes, providing you're willing to allow private investment into the the airports. Yeah. So I suppose yeah, but a bit less. But the roads, definitely public ownership. Because, yeah. again, that's an essential means of transportation. So yeah. I certainly have the, ro- the, the roads and the public ownership were a genius idea, certainly. Yeah. Okay, so we'll move on to full employment now, shall we? Yeah, let's talk about it. What's the goal? I mean, the full employment concept, the idea of... I mean, everyone thinks it means everyone has a job. Beveridge said it means less than 4% unemployment. When I interviewed Neil Kinnock about this last year, he explained that to me. And I did not know that. I generally thought full employment, everyone has a job. But no, and I looked up in Beveridge's report. It actually means below 4%. So, is the goal of full employment, in principle, a sound idea? I think, I definitely think it's a, an idea that should be looked into more than it actually is. Um, the fact that we should have everybody working is absolutely correct. But I mean, what classes, if you're unemployed, that means you're actively seeking a job and you can't find one. That's when, that's when you're unemployed. Now, employment means somebody with a job. Now, presumably, employment and unemployment obviously go hand in hand because they're practically the opposites of each other. So the question, the question of the matter is, do um I presume I presume single single uh, you know stay at home mum or stay at home dads aren't classes and unemployed so they won't be affecting the employment statistic they as are. a whole. No, they are unemployed. Well, it depends how old. No, because it, it no, it depends if they're looking for a job. If they're not looking for a job, they won't be unemployed. Only if you're looking for a job, you're unemployed. Oh no, you class them unemployed if they're able-bodied and can work. Yeah, no, but they're not looking for a job, so they're not technically under what the government defines as unemployed. Okay. As unemployed. Oh yeah, it's having so, Something is down so low in the statue is yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the thing. So what I what I think the most about this is that there needs to be a goal where full employment should be achieved. Yes, but I don't think it should be the number one policy of a government. I think I think the number one policy of a government is to make sure that every single industry is working to its full potential. And I think, and I think, obviously, and obviously, this will come hand in hand because if you need more people to join this industry to make it better, you'd reach into the unemployment uh, unemployment circle and get these people. But I think full employment is absolutely a vital, important thing. But I feel like people are putting too much emphasis on it. I mean, uh, we got one of the lowest unemployment rates in the in the Europe. Well, instance. that's not boastable since people are working three or four jobs. Yeah, true, you true, but. I certainly that's that that's got nothing to do when three percent unemployment was in the fifties and forties when people had one job, that's commendable. People have now yeah. three, four, five jobs and still don't make enough to get by. That isn't yeah. you know 
commendable. Well, I I don't see that a problem with with the with the um what with the employment statistics themselves. I think that's a problem just shared with the government and their lack of care for the people at the moment in time. Agreed. And the and their and their lack of trying to keep trying to control the market. Obviously, people want the market to be free, but there are certain situations where the government has to step in and says, "No, the market needs to be." I mean, as as Labour Party people, we don't. I mean, we we. The free market can lead to total employment if done correctly. If yeah, but doubt doubt you can never get a perfect market. It's impossible. No, but you can get a, a, a market where industry is allowed to operate without stupid regulations and where unions protect workers and the government's role is to cut taxes and occasionally introduce help to strengthen union power to strengthen workers' rights. That's the job of the yeah, but... industry. It's not to constantly stick its nose in when it doesn't know half the fuck it, half the hell it, half what's going on. Yeah, but it's a, it's a lot easier said than done, isn't it, to, to do that? Really, because look, the 1920s was an unbreakable bound of prosperity. But not, and I know that's the worst example to use because what happened in the 1930s and 1940s. But what you need is an acceptance of private... Look, when private enterprise hasn't got much expenses, what does it do with its revenue? It, it creates jobs. Mm. And creating jobs can only be done by a dynamic private sector. Now, can the government intervene when there are abuses? That, of course, of course, it must do that. Should they intervene yeah. when, you know, with like companies like Sports Direct, with Mike Ashley, or Weatherspoons? Yes, of course. Or, or JD uh, with their warehouse, or Amazon with the warehouses. Of course, it should intervene because there's something called the national interest, where we have a job to yeah. intervene when company CEOs are behaving like total and utter shit. But it's yeah. not. But the job of the state is to, I mean, to be honest, what I think with industries, what do is have what I call industrial councils, where you have the prime minister, the secretary of state for industry, the chairman of the CBI, that's the Confederation of British Industry, and the chairman of the TUC, the Trades Union Congress, all working together on industrial policy. Yeah. That way you get the best... Yeah of policy it's not government dictating orders or, or businesses dictating orders or unions dictating orders it's them all working together and i think that's the best way of doing it how do i got to mm. oh yeah unemployment yeah, yeah continue, continue. so all right so we're going to talk about uh, so is the idea of is the idea that the state must maintain employment a good idea i mean i'm presuming that's going to be yes today what because oh, I forgot to ask you these questions, fucking hell. But I mean, is the state maintaining unemployment a good idea? I think the answer should be yes, no matter who you are. Of course it is. Of course it is. It, yes, but the question is more complicated than you think because it's the question not of should the state keep people in work, of course it should, but should the state assist in the dying industries? So that I'd say no. But it's then the job of the state that when the new industries come in, that we adequately ensure that people are transferred to new industries. Mm. So, for example, when we did deindustrialization in the 1980s, when we basically took our manufacturing industry to the woodshed, it was our duty then in the 10 years before, 10 years succeeding, to train the workforce who were going to lose their job yeah. into new jobs, or we give them jobs in the public sector. Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I certainly don't think it's the role of the state to, as it were, assist dying industries, but it's certainly the role of the state to ensure we don't have unemployment. 
yeah, I agree. So, do you think, is there a role for trade unions in the idea of full employment? Yes, huge role. Trade unions should say everything right and industry should shut up and listen to the trade unions. They're done, <laughs> done. No, yeah, I mean... In a more... For the BBC, let's have some more balance. Uh, I think, look, honestly, I, I think if you are like me, uh, I have the unusual position of being called a, so- a socialist libertarian, which is a social democrat libertarian, which is what I am, in that I have all the views of social democracy, but I think that most forms of regulation are impeding to humans doing well, which is true. Mm-hmm. I think if you believe that the state is interfering, is a nuisance, and often causes destruction of enterprise, which it does, then you, but you also agree with me that workers have to be helped, have to be protected, have to be treated like normal human beings, then the unions come into play. Because the biggest yeah. the biggest bounds of progress are the trade union movement. Yeah. So I would support, as it were, government getting out of the way of industry, stop messing around, stop putting in stupid regulations that don't mean anything, and as it were, a power a bold, st- strong trade union movement to work with private enterprise, and that way mm-hmm. you have a growing free market profit economy. But you'd also have workers being treated with dignity. I think I've seen this on a podcast before. That from 1945 to 1979, we lived in the post-war Keynesian collectivist consensus, where all we did was listen to the unions. And then since then, bit of a mouthful, that isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's from Lord Harris, the post-war Keynesian collectivist consensus. Good That's idea. definitely tongue twister. Say that three times fast. Post-war Keynesian collectivist consensus. Um. <laughs> And then after Thatcher, when Thatcher got elected, it was the monetarist consensus, the monetarist individualistic consensus. I made that one, uh, where people basically <laughs> care about only business. copyright. No, me. You want to use that? You will pay me. Everyone except James Roxburgh will pay me for using that one. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. Though. <laughs> well, you, 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 you're on the podcast. You, you have all the right to use my terms. Anyways. Uh, so we lived in the monetarist consensus where we agreed only listen to big businesses, to the venture capitalists, to private enterprise, and we stopped listening to workers. I want to get back to both, where we accept that ri- becoming rich is a good thing, we must have people becoming wealthy and prosperous, and industry must be wealthy and prosperous, but we can't have it on the backs of low-paid workers' stress chains. Yeah, I agree. So I think unions have an exceptionally big role to play. I don't think militant unions have a role to play in this society. In the same way, I don't think venture capitalists have a role to play. Because I think both mm. of them are utterly batshit crazy. I think sensible centre-left unions that don't want to always go on strike, but do want a good deal for the workers, and centre-right paternalistic entrepreneurs who believe in the profit motive, who believe in dynamic enterprise, but also with the social conscience and the belief of helping others, could reindustrialize Britain. Yeah. I agree. So right. should we go to the welfare yeah, state? Yeah, let's turn, let's turn, let's turn to... Shit. Uh, let's turn to the welfare state. Do you think today we should just do the... Um, just do the... Nah, it's okay. I think I think we're going to have enough time. We're not going to... Yeah, worst comes to worst, I'll just keep droning on. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I mean... I'm sure I'll... I'll tell you what, if it gets to 720... And we've got through the domestic policy stuff. Then we'll do a separate episode on foreign policy, like doing, like we'll do an episode on like Britain and Europe, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So 
I think, yeah, we'll probably, we'll probably just stick with domestic. Because we could do, like, big episodes on, like, Britain and Europe and shit. Yeah, I think so as well. Fine. Alright, uh, ask me on welfare, I'll ask you about housing, and then I'll, and then I'll do the wartime controls. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so, do you approve of the principle... Oh, I hope this is a yes, now, by the way. I hope this is a yes. Do you approve the principle oh, of the welfare state? Right wing? Yes, of course I approve <laughs> of the principle of the welfare state. I'll see you what, James. We'll do one question at a time. I can do one question, you can do one question, we'll just go through that. Okay, okay. okay? Uh, so it's got about 20 minutes in there. Of course I approve of the principle of the welfare state. I'm not some barbarian that wants to go around depriving children and elderly people of necessary incomes. Oh, really? I know, I know I'm a free market thinker, but I'm not a, I'm not a cruel person. Okay, well, that, well that's good to know. That's good to know. Um... <laughs> I mean, look, I certainly believe that welfare should not be there for able-bodied people who are not in work, okay? Uh, except yeah. for unemployment compensation. But for the people who are disabled people, who are young people, who are elderly people, who are mothers, people who are ill, the state has a moral duty to care for these people. Anyone says, oh no, you should look after themselves. They can't look after themselves. That's the point. What do you, you can't get a disabled person to care for himself if he can't work because he's crippled in both legs. You can't get an elderly person to work because he's too old to work. The state has to care for these people. That's the purpose of the welfare state. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> okay, was the creation of child benefit, do you think, a very sound idea? The idea of oh. know, weekly payments to children, uh, families of children. Well, I, I would say it's a very bold idea as well as a sound idea. Yeah. Um. I think I think it was definitely a step that. I mean, I definitely definitely marketed it into the um into the thing. And I think I think again, what people don't realise is that for the past, for the past three four years, maybe even five years at the worst case scenario, they the parents hadn't seen the children. They were away. Yeah. Um, and then they don't ha- they didn't have to worry about the cost of the children at that time. And then if you had a family of you had three children, all those three children coming in. Maybe may, maybe the father's injured away at war. I mean, this, I mean, this was a very likely, very possible scenario for at the time. I mean, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about a one occasional thing. This was like a major, major thing that would happen to many families. Um, but then the father comes back injured from war, is unable to work, and then the mum's uh, the mum has uh, the mum's lost a job at the uh, munitions factory or you know whatever factory he's working at because they no longer need to supply any weapons or any particular armor gear, and then the children are back. Um, with, with their parents not only did they now have to feed the mother who only had to feed one mouth at that time now has to feed four has to eat has to feed five and total the three parents and when when the costs weren't even a thing uh, weren't really a factor in what happened to be done i mean there's even a situation where maybe if they're in proper big cities that they didn't even get to um the, the houses had to be rebuilt as well so i think introducing cutting down the costs and this is what the welfare state was introduced here for it was reducing the effects of the war and it was reducing the effects of the issues of the war and it's little little see unseen things that people do that's mean that i mean i mean i certainly if i was a minister at the time i completely overlooked the fact that three children are going back uh i got are coming back to their house to the family where it wasn't when they weren't an issue of cost and now they are an issue of cost i'd have overlooked that i'm pretty sure most people overlooked that uh, I'm pretty sure maybe even you might have overlooked that doubt or you've got like a Sherlock Holmes mind where you see, ah, oh, now this is no, coming no, around. I've overlooked that because anyone would, yeah. know, it's common sense. If you've got one yeah. person in the house and there's five people in the house, you have to make allowances for the increased expenditure. Yeah, exactly. And I think and I think, and I think that was pure, I mean, NHS was pure genius, but I think this was genuinely just one of the, one of the unwritten 
well, one of the leasing knowledge geniuses that Clement Attlee, uh, Gate, uh, not, not uh, Butler, sorry, um, all introduced. And I think. Oh, it was I, oh, well, yeah, no, but I mean, I'm talking, it, it would be it would be with the chance as well. With the yeah, chance as well. That was because it was Crips who was the chance, it was Crips, Dalton, and Hugh Gates who were chancellors. Butler was Tory, but no, the welfare state was was partly David Lloyd George, partly Winston Churchill and the Liberal Party, and most of it was done by Clem Attlee and the Labour government. Mm-hmm. But I think, but I think the child benefit was a very, very good idea, yeah. completely. So again, though, could it be reformed? Do you think? Do you think we need to I mean, have a cap on the people who can have it? Like, uh, you know, means testing. Is there a case to ensure that? I what think they'll have it. It's not okay. There is there is a serious issue now because I don't think you do you. Okay, I did. This is very rough, rough geography here for you that we learned in G in GCC. This could be completely wrong. But I think, but I think that there were four, there were five stages of a nation. There's stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, stage five. In stage one to four, in stage one to three, the population is increasing because yeah. a new economic pro- progress and all that. Stage four, the amount of deaths is decreasing, but also the amount of births is decreasing at the same time. So, so it's staying pretty much level, maybe increasing a bit more. And stage five, which are currently Japan, South Korea, Germany, are in, they're seeing a decline in the population. The and and yeah. Uh, an aging population and a decline in the people having birth because contraception is available and all of this. Um, so you have, so you have this, and you have you have a situation where South Korea and Japan are rushing to pay parents to have children. It, it's a huge thing, and I think, and I think we cannot. You wouldn't necessarily attribute the declining birth rate to contraception. You'd attribute it to education. Well, there's a lot of things. Yeah, but you would you would argue contraception is about education. No, no, I was like, in African villages where they weren't educated in like the 50s and 60s, they used to have six, seven children because they, they, most of them, half of them would die before age 16. Now they have two or three children because the medical te- improvements have been so vast. Yeah, that, look, 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 I just use that as an example, though. There, there are loads of reasons why. There's loads of reasons. I'm, I'm not just giving an example, I'm just simply saying it's because of education, the advancement of medical technologies and contraception. Mm, yeah. It's slow. So long as we improve uh, our intellectual capabilities, there will be a declining rate in the increase of people. Um, not necessarily, because I mean, for instance, what France have done, they um, uh, and I don't, and you know me, I don't really like using no, French government's examples as, as a good part. So it must be a good policy if this is a situation. Um, they, they are now they've increased their child benefits. Yeah. Um, sort of thing. And what's happened is that they've managed to slow the amount of the, the, the ranch to slow their progression into the stage five of the nation. Smart. Stage five isn't stage five isn't a bad thing. No, it's it's a very good thing, techn- technological wise or this wise. But it's just the pop the you're losing the population, you have an aging population and less young people. So there's um so you have like for every for every two elderly people there's one young person, which you don't really want as a nation in itself. Um so it comes back to the it comes back to the situation where there's there's so many countries now that are desperate to have that children, and I feel like getting rid of child benefits would be a silly thing to do. I don't think I would get rid of it, but you know, reducing it also would be silly. I think we need to modify it to make sure that to stop us from going to the stage five nation. It's got a proper name, and I can't remember what it is, but there are specific stages, and it's going to normally all night now. Paying families, low income families, if their children have. 95% attendance rates. I think, Absolutely. I think that's the way. I think paying low income families if their children do well in the studies, the exams or the coursework, I think that the opportunity NYC initiative of Michael Bloomberg is certainly a path 
to go on. But, we, but I'm, I'm, time is against us, I'm afraid. Because uh, I know you're going to be off at 7.20. So yeah. let's go talk about unemployment benefit. Right, okay. So, I mean, what 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 was the idea of the universal un- unemployment benefit? Yeah, was it a sensible idea as well? Yeah, it was sensible. It's not been reformed, but it's still sensible. The idea that people without a job should um, receive compensation. I mean, look, at the mm-hmm. moment, people are very ignorant about how low welfare benefits are. If, when I talk, for example, if I told you right now unemployment benefit was £74.25 a week, I think then people's myth that people choose to live on welfare benefits will be disposed very quickly, primarily because yeah. nobody can live on £74.25 a week. But that is no. an employment compensation. And I think the solution is link it to the minimum wage, but put a work requirement on it, saying 16 weeks of work in a job training programme and on the 17th week, first day, you will have a job. Yeah. I think the failure of job training programs is we just, if politicians say, we'll do a job training program, does that actually lead to a job? It just, oh, no. I have these skills. No use to me. But if, if the job training was to lead directly to the job, then you would see yeah. mass participation. It'd basically be a public works program, which I am for myself. Yeah, I agree. Um, but nevertheless. So, so we're gonna. Or do you want to go? Should we just go to housing? Um, to be honest, they all link. The supplementary benefits. Yeah, they all link. Yeah, yeah. Perfectly sound. Should, should, should we just treat this as one? Should we just treat that as one? Yeah, all right, let's take it one question. So, was the principle of? I mean, well, I mean, look, we don't need to about war pensions, social sickness benefits, because anyone who disagrees with the idea of sickness benefits and war pensions can go fuck himself. Uh, but it is wonder. What Not even the Conservatives were against that, which shows how which shows exactly. About, just about. <laughs> uh, if you are against that, I would advise you to lock yourself in the bathroom and take a long look at the mirror and say, "What am I doing with my life?" Uh, but yeah. on the question of the social services, do you think that was an interesting idea? The fact that we have a voluntary system, well, to an extent, Bob's more local operated, working with distressed families and aggrieved people, is that interesting? Mm. Idea? I think. It's a very interesting idea, and I don't think it was really an idea that anybody was calling for at the time either. It was just something that they introduced. Um, I think, I think, the social services right now. When people say social services, it's it's a form of it's a form of you know protection is what is is what what I would describe it as is protection for children, for families, you know, this for, for people. I mean, and it's and I think social services now. I mean, they'll probably be massively underfunded. I haven't really recently looked into the social services budget. Yeah, yeah, for twelve years. Yeah. So, um, but again, it was it was again another another unwritten thing that people don't associate with um, with Atlee and uh, the Labour government at the time. I mean, people people when when I say Atlee government, you think you know just after the war, NHS is what is what most people think. Yeah. Yeah. But what? But. And then you have you have loads of this, like the welfare state. You have or people sometimes associate it with the welfare state, but they don't go to the details of the child benefits. They don't go to the details of the social services. They don't go to say, the war pensions. They don't go to uh, the debt from sickness benefits. All these are introduced by them as well. And it and it comes and it comes to a point where Atlee introduced so much that I mean we we're not even talking about all of them. We're, we're talking about the major ones, even these little minor ones that that help that you wouldn't that you just take for granted that pretty many people take for granted. I stuff that stuff that I'll introduce and that still lives on today and you know and the thing is to me you know it's a good policy is if it stayed in 
if it stayed in past Boris Johnson's government <laughs> because even he hasn't got rid of it. Oh, I'd say if it's if it past David Cameron's government. Cameron's government, yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson, though, certainly. Uh, I agree with that. I think the longe- if a policy has had longevity, 70, 80 years, it's clearly worked. NHS, social services, yeah. Um, let's move on to housing. So, uh, would you add is the new towns effective? Yes, they were. They allowed us to build a million homes. But here's the idea. I think, let's go about public housing. So, the public housing, uh, was, was the idea of public housing a sensible one? I know, I'm pretty sure they were asking for 300,000 new houses a year, wasn't they? Is that what they were asking? Yeah, they only met that one year, didn't they? Yeah, that was Tories, 51 and 64. 51, I, I could a million homes in six years. We built... Is that what they asked for? Millions in six years. And 800,000 of them were council houses or public houses, whatever you want to call mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Are they sensible? Yes, to the extent it basically freezed rents, it got people's homes refurbished, it was a massive rebuilding program. Um, to that extent, yes. But no, and also st- stability and accommodation in that you were not basically kicked out of your property. However, it denies people the right to ownership. And I think that when Margaret Thatcher privatised the council houses, it was a brilliant idea done badly, like a lot of Margaret Thatcher's ideas. Um, but No, 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 no. Like a very slight few, Margaret Thatcher. She just did them badly. <laughs> There's yeah. no brilliant ideas about half of hers. Yeah, true. About one-tenth of her ideas. That, and yeah. all of them were done horrendously. That's true. But <laughs> the idea of letting people own their own house was genius. The issue was, when you stopped building council houses, that's <laughs> going to create a bit of a problem. And I think we have to go back to building at least 150,000 new council houses every year, but then sell them directly to the land, to the tenants. Not the landlord, to the tenants. So people can mm. buy cheap, good quality, affordable housing. So that's the solution. It's to build council housing on an epic scale, like the Attlee government did, 100,000, 200,000 a year. And then sell them to the tenant, not the landlord. Mm. I, I definitely, I definitely think that would work. So, um, so it goes back to the public uh, relationship. I believe in passion. Yeah. Public idea of building them, private idea of selling them. So, would you say the idea of subsidised rates was a sensible idea? Yeah, yeah. There's so much of a sensible idea that even 80 years on, I still believe in them. Again, uh, another. Look, subsidised rates is the idea that people who are in low or vulnerable backgrounds shouldn't pay too high of a cost for their own house. Now, the way I do it in today's terms, say you pay 15% of your salary, that's it. I mean, that's the way you're doing subsidised rent nowadays. Uh, yeah. Mm. But was the idea of constructing a million council houses sensible, and should we continue constructing more council houses, do you think? Um, I would say... Continuing structuralism, yeah, and building a million at the time was a ma- was something that probably needed to be done with the matches of destruction that has happened after the war. Again, people people just think people take out of context that the war had just happened. Um, I think I think it was absolutely necessary at the time. Uh, I think a million new houses now would be practically impossible, um, especially especially with the current climate that we're in, and also. We are, we, are, we are currently in a housing shortage. There's no denying about that. There are people who wanted to buy houses, people who wanted to But the issue is, when you put all this together, is that if you build more houses, you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to make what I would like, what, what I like to say is that the more houses you build, technically the cheaper it gets, yeah, which is brilliant for buyers uh, and rubbish for sellers. And I, and I think, and I think the buyers should be 
more entitled than the seller at this point in the climate. If there's a, if there's a housing crisis, the buyer should be taking uh, the buyer should be uh, more in charge of the funding of the aspect. But if there's if there's a housing surplus, which is for ages, I can't remember the last time there was a housing surplus. But as a housing surplus, the sellers should be taken as a point where I can say, Do you know what, you're in charge. That's what I think should happen. And right now, right now, what the Conservative government are doing and what and what was and what was trying to be changed back then, because it was a housing crisis, they decided what what uh, Atlee said was saying, Do you know what, we're going to give the buyers the power. That isn't a thing anymore. You don't get that. You had you had that up until about I'm going to say up until Thatcher, and then Thatcher got rid of consensus politics. You could even say you could even say Heath was the one who got rid of it as well. But um, no, no, no. Get 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 rid of the power to the buyer uh, part of. Um... Yeah, all right. With the Clay Cross thing, when they yeah uh, Clay Cross to put all the rents by a quid, which goes against the principle of locally owned properties. Yeah, so it is. Yeah, um, so you could say that, but I think. But I think I think but I think it's mainly factors that we can have to blame for for the end of the the end of thing. And then and then what happened? Tony Blair came in and tried to give power back to the buyers. Gordon Brown tried to give power back to the buyers. And then and then there's a economic crash. Gordon Brown got voted out after calling a woman a um, a bigoted woman. <laughs> um, so um, and then and then what happened was David Cameron came in and then gave power back to the sellers and gave power back to the market. How it must be given back to the tenants. I mean, the issue is we've got to get all this foreign money out of the housing market because that, I mean, true, true. if you want to reduce house prices, very simple solution. Say no foreign investors allowed to invest in the housing market. That Since foreign investment drove up the price of houses through the roof by the laws of the free market, that will lead to the reduction in house prices. Uh, but yeah. eventually you would lead to the Great Depression again because if home values plummet, bankers' confidence will plummet. And they're uh, causing a second Great Depression, so we can't do yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Depressingly shit, yes, but they are. Anyways, but what's your view on rationing, James? Well, I think rationing, I mean, again, um, rationing during the wartime was acceptable. I really accepted it. Uh, there was obviously opposition, that's why I had the black market set up, but obviously most people said, you know, it's the duty to the country to rest. I think people were annoyed about how long it took to get rid of rationing afterwards. There was still, there was still rationing on sweets, there's still rationing on sugar and all of this. Um, for instance, bats, oil. Yeah, yeah. Anything, anything that really came over from the Atlantic was very much um, rationed. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, you even had rations in some extreme circumstances still on butter as well, as it was, was a thing. Um, but I think, I think the rationing to carry on for about two years, I can understand that. Get, get building up the economy, I can understand all of it. But I mean, by the 1950s, I would certainly think it should be got. It should have got rid of. I think that's a major reason why I lost the election. Yeah. Well, I didn't lose the 1950 election, but the 1951 election. The majority got slashed from 140 yeah. to five. I mean, the rationing. Yeah, but I mean, he still he still had a majority. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. But I do generally think that rationing lost him the election. I don't yeah. think it helps us. I don't think it was the welfare state. I don't think he was even waging price controls. I think when the state starts restricting the amount of food people can have. Or what you know, that's getting into what I call personal restrictions, which most people find detestable. Was it needed during the war? Of course it was. Was it needed till about 1948, 49? Yes. Wasn't it after 49 when the trade started to ease up and tariffs were coming down and we were actually making these products again? No, it was not. Uh what about wage and price controls? I mean, I think personally, I think right now in 2022, there is a huge case for price controls to be brought back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I think in times of high inflation, when inflation goes above, say, 5%, you have to have universal, mandatorily enforced price controls on all products, full stop. Wage controls, I no, I wouldn't say wage controls. I'd certainly argue that wages must rise in lead at least in line with the prices, but I wouldn't say each employer must be paid this level of pay. Yeah, I completely completely agree with you there. Um, I don't see a situation really where I would say, um, I mean, back then, especially after during during just after the war. Again, I've used this example sometimes just after the war to set a podcast episode. But I mean, it's a major reason. Yeah. Um, But I think, yeah, price controls and uh, wage controls are definitely, definitely needed. And I think, again, now, huge case for them. I don't think. Um, I mean, it's become such a big case. It's actually conservatives arguing for all of now. Backbench stories who are now saying, Do you know what we need? <laughs> we need price and wage control. Nobody's saying, let's uh, only raise prices by inflation. What's that, Tories? Uh, it's a price control. Yes, it is. It's a price control. I mean, look, y- you can be a free marketer like I am, whilst also recognising that when shopping bills double in the space of 10 months... That is clearly an obscenity, and the state yeah. then regulate the price of control. Again, it goes back to the thesis of what I call the national interest. I'm going to close off now, very quickly. We're saying it goes back to the thesis of the national interest that the state has to intervene to protect people's lives. It, mm. you, you need a private enterprising economy to create the wealth for the public services. But there are times where there is nationalisation of essential materials or there is wage and price controls or uh, changing reforming to housing payments or food subsidies where the state has a moral duty to intervene so you don't have people languishing in poverty. You know, the exceptions yeah. are morally horrendous. It must be the job of government to wipe it out. Oh, that's yeah, a- I agree. Everyone knows what I mean. Anyways, this, is coming to- this episode has come to an end, episode 42 of the podcast. Uh, now, here's the schedule. I'm going to be very quick because James has to go. On Tuesday or Wednesday, depending when the midterms finally cease after they've counted all the flipping votes, me you and wouldn't James... have this in the UK, would you? Because the public would take it to their own hands. Ten hours, <laughs> ten hours for all 650 seats counted. These for five days on the skill counting the votes in Arizona. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, imagine, I mean, there's actual races to see in our country who can count the ballots first. <laughs> Quite. Anyway, so on we're going to do a short 40 minute episode it won't be a long one just talking about the midterms talking about what the new congress can do looking at ideas of the balanced budget etc but also looking at the races that shocked us because it's been the shocking midterms yeah can't be here next sunday because he's got his exams to prepare for mm. so on sunday i will then do my one-man band episode. I might get James Bell on, James the second to come on and talk to us about the budget and what we thought about it and discuss it. Might get Mr. Aldridge on if he's free. Uh, I know for a fact that Harry Aldridge listens to this podcast, so there we are. That that, that, that that's gonna get. There we it. go. I'll get him. Shout out there for him. Oh, he's a good fellow. We show a shout to Harry Aldridge and James Bell, fine men. As, as we are, not fine as us, but still fine men, nevertheless. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Shit. So, you ruined their chances of joining the podcast. <laughs> on to no end now. No, they're, they're fine. They're good friends of mine. Anyways, the point is...
God, I went now in 20 minutes without insulting anybody. And I had to do it on the final <laughs> minute of the podcast. Anyway, the point is, on Sunday, I'm going to do the budget episode. Then, next the Sunday after that, we're going to do an episode either on the 5164 Tory government, or maybe do an episode on Britain and Europe, whichever we decide to do. Mm-hmm. Probably 5164 Tory government. Right, until then, uh, we'll see you on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, bye. Yeah, bye.